The text of this sermon is from the 8th chapter of Romans, and it's verse 20, verses 26 and 27, a familiar passage, a familiar verse that we quote often. And when you find that verse of Scripture, that passage, I'd like for you to just uh, hold the place and turn to the 11th chapter of Luke, and I want to read verse 1. So we've got two this morning, really, Luke 11, 1 and Romans 8, 26 and 27. I'll read the Luke verse first. And it came about that while he, Jesus, was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Verse 26, And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. As far as the record goes, there is only one explicit request that the disciples ever made of Jesus to teach them. It was how to pray. And it seems kind of strange at first sight because these men had always prayed. Having been trained religiously from their youth, they had always prayed. But coming under the influence of Jesus, they saw what prayer meant to Him. And all of a sudden it dawned on them. They didn't know how. And so they came to Jesus to ask Him this, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught His disciples. Obviously, they observed what prayer meant to Jesus. How that He went into to prayer in one mood and came out another. And they saw this tremendous power that was released in Jesus in prayer. And they saw that to Jesus, prayer was more of a force than a farm. And so when they placed beside the prayers of Jesus what they called praying, even though the same word covered them both, they realized that it was far apart. And so these men who had always prayed came to Jesus to ask Him to teach them how. It's an impressive day, the day when religious people discover that prayer is not a simple thing, when it's not that easy, when it's something that cannot be treated with nonchalance. Do you know how to pray? Are you satisfied with your prayer life? Do you get through to God when you pray? Do you lay hold on God when you pray? The truth of the matter is, 
we can offer up to God the most honest and sincere request, and there will not be the slightest chance in the world that God will grant it. And the truth of the matter is, we can fool ourselves into thinking that what we're doing is praying when the words get no higher than our head. The act of prayer is not a simple act. And so Jesus spent a long time teaching His disciples how to pray. And that's why the Bible is filled with admonitions concerning prayer. It's not always easy to know how to pray. As a matter of fact, sometimes prayer to pray is agony. And so these disciples came and asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, knowing this morning that... It is the most important religious function that we perform. And knowing that most of us are not really satisfied with our prayer life, and knowing that prayer is not an easy thing, I want to, I want to suggest five questions we should ask ourselves about prayer. Number one, is it valid? James 5.16, is it rational? Valid. James 5.16 says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And that word rendered effectual comes from a Greek root that means valid, sensible. Have you ever noticed how sensible the prayers of Jesus were? Read John 14 through 17 and discover Him talking to His disciples and to the Father. And notice how down to earth and sensible His conversation is. And read again the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name, etc. And every bit of that prayer is rational and valid. It is obvious that God wants our prayers to be sensible, not the wild-eyed calls for black magic. For every prayer that goes up to God must be filled with truth and reason. And truth and reason demands personal sincerity. The repetitious, mechanical uttering of words is not praying either. Now the Buddhists have their prayer wheels and they write their prayers out on a piece of paper or on a parchment and they put it in a cylinder on a sharp stick and tie it to a wheel. And with every revolution of that wheel that goes round and round, it, it is thought that a prayer is offered to God. Now before we throw stones at the Buddhist, recognize that many times our prayers are cranked out with the same kind of mechanical manner and the same repetition of words that are so predictable. And we need to ask ourselves, are these real prayers like the prayer Jesus prayed in the New Testament? What wife would appreciate her husband tape recording his feelings of affection for his wife? I mean, he, write, he puts it in a, on a tape. Dear, I just want you to know I love and appreciate you. So one day she says, honey, do you love me? He says, play the tape. Uh, it, it's got to be more personal than that. I mean, she longs for his embrace and she wants him to convey her, his love to her, not just in the words, intimate words, but in the, in the touch and in the smile and in, in the look that's in his eyes. Do you have that kind of relationship, intimate relationship with God? 
so that you just kind of talk with him as one who loves another. That's a valid and sensible prayer. And a rational prayer leaves room for a possible no answer. I mean, logically, it's not even sensible to believe that every request God would grant. Psalm 106 tells about the children of Israel who murmured and coveted in the wilderness and begged God. The psalmist says, and so God gave them their request and sent them leanness of soul, the curse of answered prayer. When I was a kid growing up, my grandfather, I spent some time with him, he chewed tobacco. Boy, it looked so good. And besides, he was so macho, you know, when he had that big wad of tobacco in the side of his mouth and he'd spit, you know. Man, I wish I could do that. And I begged my granddad for some tobacco. Every time I went to see him, I'd say, Granddad, let me chew some of that tobacco. He'd say, no, son, you can't. You're not big enough to chew this tobacco. I begged him to let me chew some. One day, oh, my soul, one day he did. He cut me off a chunk of days of work <laughs> and, uh, and handed that to me and said, now, be careful with this, son. Oh, the curse of an answered request. I mean, the whole, the whole world turned green and, and upside down. And while I was lying on my back holding on to this world that had suddenly gone wildly out of hand, I was saying, Gerald, you dummy, why, why would you ask for such a thing? More than that, granddaddy, you dummy, why did you give me this? You better hope that God doesn't grant every request you ask. That's why Jack Taylor says we're so blind, so ignorant, so weak. Were it not for God's rich mercy withholding what we ask, we'd be ruined by our own request. Ask yourself this morning, is a, is a no answer more logical for you than a yes? Question number two. Have you done all you can to answer that prayer in your own strength? I'm here to tell you that we make a mockery of prayer and a sham of His fatherhood when we ask God to do for us what we can do for ourselves. There is an old saying, I don't know how much truth there is, I think there's some in it that says God only does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. What would the world be like if God answered the request of every Christian just as He prayed it? Why, it would empty this world of discipline. There'd be no discipline. None of us would work. Why would we want to? All we'd have to do is, is pray. God, I want a T-bone steak, medium well. Here are the blueprints. Deliver me a house. I'll be ready to move in by Monday. And there'd be no personal growth because spiritual growth is based upon the human response to the divine will. And I want you to watch this. In prayer, we must bring the best we have and are and place them at the disposal of God. And we must do what is humanly possible to grant the request before the request. I know some folks who pray for reconciliation of a broken relationship because they don't want to go and heal the relationship themselves. They don't want to go and say, look, I'm sorry, I was wrong, forgive me. And I know some people who pray for God to save their neighbor 
because they're not willing to go across street or town to share the gospel themselves. And prayer for them is just a cop-out. And I believe that there are a lot of, a lot of prayers that can be answered just with a little dedication and initiative on our part. And I heard about a little boy listening to his father praying for missions around the world. The father was considerably wealthy. He prayed for the missionaries and the mission projects around the world. When he finished praying, the little boy said, Daddy, if I had your money, I could answer those prayers. And so we don't go to the doctor. We don't pray for healing until we go to the doctor. And we don't pray for the toothache to quit hurting until we've gone to the dentist. And we don't pray for God to give us spiritual maturity until we've gotten in the church and until we've accepted the disciplines of a personal devotional and prayer life. And someone has said that the greatest saints of God who have the greatest prayer life are those who have made prayer the extension of what they're already doing. And someone else said, don't preach anywhere unless you're willing to preach as you go. And that's why the psalmist said, Commit your way unto the Lord, and He will bring it to pass. And if you'll read the seventh chapter of Joshua, you'll find God saying to a man, Quit praying, stop praying. And Joshua's on his knees, praying after the defeat at Ai. And God said, I can't hear the prayers of your people until those people straighten themselves out, until they sanctify themselves. We have to deal with personal sin in our life first. For if I give sin an uncontested place in my life, the Lord will not hear me. I've got to do those things that are necessary to get that prayer answered even before I take it to God. Question number three. Is what I'm asking God really what God would want? Real prayer is, is a prayer that can be prayed in Jesus' name. Now what does that mean in, in Jesus' name? I hear that phrase at the end of every prayer, and I put it at the end of every prayer I pray. But it has to be more than just a kind of a uh, sign-off, you know, for prayer. I think it has a twofold meaning. Now, I want you to hang in here with me because this is so dynamic to prayer life. And, and I'll have to illustrate what, what, I, what I'm trying to say to get it across. I think the first meaning of praying in Jesus' name can kind of be illustrated like, a, like, a, like a, a, a woman who marries a man. Her name is Miss Jones, and she becomes Mrs. Smith. And, and she literally moves out of the realm of the past into the realm of His name. And it doesn't matter how poor she's been in the past. Let's suppose that Miss Jones has just been a real, she's real poor and comes from a very poor family. And she marries this rich guy, Mr. Smith. And he has all this money and all these holdings and all this property. And she literally moves out of the realm of, of, uh, of poverty and moves into the realm of his name so that in his name she becomes the possessor of what he possesses. Now watch this. I say it with the deepest reverence. If the church is the bride of Christ, then we are Mrs. Jesus, says Jack Taylor. Hallelujah. And we literally move from the realm of, of poverty in the past. We move into the realm of His name. And all that He has is ours. Now the flip side of praying in Jesus' name is this. To pray in Jesus' name refers to His character and to His nature. When you hear someone's name, you envision the, the, the person who bears that name. 
so that to pray in Jesus' name is to make a request that is consistent with the nature and character of Jesus. And Ron Dunn illustrates like this. He tells about going with his family and his brother's family to the county fair over here in Arkansas. Somewhere in Arkansas. Buddy Gray probably tell us where they have county fairs over there. And he said, when they got into this county fair, they had this kind of this uh, circus type thing, this carnival. And he said they had this ticket booth. And he said, we went up and plunked down $10 and got tickets, you know, ticket for every ride. You know how it goes. And he said, we just had all these kids with us, Tom and Sally and Bill and Mary and Jane and all of them. And he said, I'd, I'd, we'd get up to a ride. And he said, I had the tickets. And the kids would walk by and I'd hand them a ticket and they'd hand it to the ticket taker. He said, I, we got up to this ride, and he said, there was Bill, and there was John, there was Sally, there was Mary, there was Jane, there was Jim. And he said, he started handing some kid there he'd never seen before. And he just automatically, you know, kind of handed him one. He got, took it back, you know. And he said his, little, his smallest son said, that's all right, Daddy, he's a friend of mine. I met him down here on the, on the runway at the last ride, and I told him you'd give him a ticket. He was requesting in his father's name. Now watch this. It's mind-boggling, the implications of that. For when you pray in the name of Jesus, that is, if you make a request that is consistent with His character and nature, it is as if He were making the request. And we all know what that means. You can turn to the 11th chapter of John, and when Jesus came to, to Bethany, Mary and Martha came out and said, If you'd have been here, our brother would not have died. Yet, we know now that whatever you ask the Father, He'll do it for you. So if you pray in Jesus' name, you get it just like Jesus would. The implications of that are mind-boggling. Now that's where the Holy Spirit comes in, as this text, uh, as this text reveals. For the Holy Spirit is the interpreter of the will of God to us. The Holy Spirit interprets to our heart, to our spirit, to our mind, what the will of God is, so we pray in the will of God. And the Holy Spirit is the interceptor, so that He intercepts our prayers that are wrong kinds of prayers, and bends our will to pray as Jesus would pray, and that prayer is answered. Jesus said, If you abide in Me, My words abide in you, you ask what you will, and it shall be done for you. Now, sometime haven't you had that haunting feeling after you prayed that there's a that you uh, that your prayer has just been you know just a miss? Haven't you had that feeling? And you need to ask yourself if you live under the control of the Holy Spirit, if you live under His control, you just you just ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, is this a prayer that comes from my deepest longing, or is this my my groaning, or is this just a just a passing fancy? Is this uh, is this an extension of my own selfish greed? Is it something that I want to consume on my own lust? Is it what Jesus wants? For I am convinced of this. Now, I don't know much about prayer. As a matter of fact, the more I know about prayer, the less I know. But I know this. Every prayer that the Holy Spirit prompts you to pray is going to be answered. Ask yourself, is this what God would want? Question number four. It's a big question, number four. Do you really believe that God has the power to answer prayer? you really believe that? A little girl prayed, God, make Sally a good girl if that's possible. Now, that might kind of be uh, the feeling that some of us have. 
you know, God, if it's possible, you know, if it, it, well, I'm here to tell you that all things are possible with God. Now, I was looking through my quiet time the other day, just going back through some th- notes that I made in my quiet time, and that's the best... Those are the best notes you ever have. I came on on something that I hadn't thought about in quite a while. I, I, I remembered reading it. Uh, you know, when, that, when, when the, when the uh, little boy was possessed of a demon or uh, he was epileptic or whatever, he fell in the, uh, would fall in the fire and they brought him to Jesus. And that father came to Jesus and asked this question. He said, or made this statement. He said, Lord, if you can, Jesus, if you can, make my son whole. Heal my son, if you can. And Jesus comes back with this flash and he says, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. What do you mean if you can? And I, and I looked in, my, uh, in, in, in a commentary, on, uh, I, I put a, a page number beside a New Testament to look in his commentary. I want you to listen to every word this man says about that statement. Jesus seized upon the Father's words at the point where they were most tempered with doubt. If you can, verse 23, that is, if you can, can be paraphrased like this, as regards your remark about my ability to help your son, I tell you everything depends upon your ability to believe, not on mine to act. By this reversal of intent, Jesus indicates that the release of the man's son from possession is not to be a response to the condition, if you can, as if his power were something to be elicited through challenge. What is to be tested is the arena of, in the arena of experience is not Jesus' ability, but the Father's refusal to set limits to what can be accomplished through the power of God. That's the problem. We, we set limits as to what can be accomplished through the power of God. I believe you can, I believe you can help me get a job, but I'm not, I don't really believe that you can uh, um, heal my son who's sick. See? If you can. Now, we have to make a statement. We have to come from some premise, and the premise is the premise of faith that believes that God can do anything. Now, I can't prove that to you. In fact, the great things of life cannot be proved. That person's love for you and your love for them can't be proved. I mean, how do you prove that? You have a mathematical equation for it? Do you have a scientific evidence for that? No, you just know it down in your heart. You know it down here. And I want to make this statement. I want you to write it on the walls of your mind. There is a knowledge that is, that is available to the heart that is denied the brain. There is a heart knowledge that the brain knowledge never grasps and that heart knowledge just knows that God can do it. Now I can't prove that uh, where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, God is in the middle of them. I have no scientific evidence for that. If He'd leave some tracks, you know, maybe we could... I have no scientific evidence that the Lord is our shepherd and that God is our refuge and strength and very present help in trouble. I have no mathematical equation to formulate that. But call it faith or what you will, we know it in our heart. And somebody went through the Carlsbad Caverns and they got out of the bottom of that thing and turned off all the lights to show what total darkness was like. And the little girl was kind of, this little girl was kind of whimpering and afraid. 
And her brother said, now, Betty, don't be afraid. There's a man down here who can turn on the, dark, turn on the lights. Now, that we just know that there is someone who is a, a, available and, and out there somewhere. He, he's here who can turn on the lights when it gets dark. We just know that. And you say, well, what about all those unanswered prayers? Well, I have a tendency to believe in it with Alexander McLaren that every unanswered prayer can be traced to a defect in the Christian's character. And that where there are unanswered prayers, it can be traced to the human side rather than the divine. And that's what James said when he said, You have not, you ask, but you have not because you ask amiss. One last question to ask. It's this. Have you turned it over to God, relinquishing yourself? I mean, have you gotten yourself out of the way? Have you... Have you surrendered it to God and acted on what we call surrender or trust? Have you done that? Now the Bible allows us to do a lot of things. It allows us to look in on the greatest struggle in prayer in the history of mankind. It took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is there in prayer, in agonizing, in prayer He says, Lord... If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And we are ushered into the mystery of the twofold nature of Jesus. Did, did you notice that? He said, My will and thy will. For as a human being, he's. He feared what was before Him and dreaded that awful death of the cross and becoming sin for us. But as He prayed, the, the will, the mist that surrounded the will of God began to dissolve and He saw it. And His human will merged with the divine will. And He not only embraced the divine will, He rejoiced in it. And he said to Simon Peter, who came in there later to cut off the ear of the guard, Don't you know, Simon Peter, that I must drink the cup the Father has given me? And, and the word there in the Greek means that he said it with exultation. Don't stop me from this. It's what I want to do. For the human will merged with the divine will. He didn't pray, let thy will be changed. He said, let thy will be done. And it was an act of submission and commitment. Have you come to that place in prayer? Now most of us, someone said, we want to know the will of God in order that we might, not in order that we might do the will of God, we want to know the will of God in order that we might consider the will of God. Now, real praying has already considered the will of God before it ever prays and comes to say, Lord, thy will be done. And I not only will accept thy will, I will exalt in it. Now that happens. The first step of that becoming a reality is when we understand our weakness. Now this text says, the Spirit helps us in our infirmities. And that Greek word is strengthlessness. 
And Vine in his book says, it is not a reference to the, to the absence of strength. It is a reference to the opposite of strength, the negative of strength. And it refers to the total inability to produce results. And nothing can describe us any better than that. And when we come to that place where we say, Lord, I've done what I can to answer this prayer. I'm praying in Jesus' name. I'm coming in act of submission for your will to be accomplished. I'm getting myself out of the way. Now you just do what you want to do. That's prayer. That's what it means when it says, Lord, teach us to pray. Listen, I'm finished. Probably was finished a while ago, but I'm still going to this, and then I'll quit. Harsh Bushnell discovered that he had six months to live. And so he went to the White Mountains of New York to spend the last years of his life. A physician by the name of Walter Twitchell, Mark Twain's physician, came to him and visited with him. And after their conversation, Horace Bushnell said, Some, one of us ought to pray. And Horace Bushnell prayed. The doctor said that Bushnell began to pray like this, Lord, I remember all the way that you have led me. And then he said he fell on his face, buried his face in the dust, and poured out his heart to God. And the physician said, I was afraid to reach out my hand I was afraid to move lest I touch God. Wouldn't you want, don't you want to learn to pray like that? Lord, teach us to pray. Bow with me. Father, we come this morning to confess that we have so many, so many things that stand between us and a close and intimate fellowship. So much sin with which we have to deal. So much doubt. And God, I pray this morning that that sin will be removed. We'll be inspired and challenged to go do what's necessary to get things straight so we can pray. And I pray, God, this morning that we'll get to you in our prayer. That we'll feel, Lord, your cleansing and forgiveness. We'll be right with you and with others so that you can bless our life. Lord, teach us to pray. Now, we have three invitations this morning. First invitation is for those of you who have never trusted Christ as your personal Savior. You've never come to say, I've been, I'm a sinner, I'm lost, I'm separated from God. I want to come and trust Christ and be saved. I claim Jesus, what He's done at Calvary for me and for my need. Or there may be some of us who need to come to say, I need to get right with God. I need to get right with others. I want to begin here at this altar in prayer. I want to rededicate myself to Him. Or you might want to come this morning to say, I want to place my life in the church. I want to join the church. God has led me to be a part of this fellowship. And I'll do that today.
We're going to sing an invitation. We invite you to come. Come on the first verse. That's the best time to come right now.